Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Fly Past podcast. I'm Hans from Kiero and I am here with Group Captain Alistair Montgomery, OBE. Uh, hello, how are you? Good morning, Hans, and I'd prefer if you called me Monty. Monty, it seems sort of, it seems um, delightfully informal, uh, given your title, but I'm willing to uh, go with whatever you with, with whatever you say. How are you, Monty? I'm fine, thank you very much. And thanks for uh, thanks for uh, joining us. So um, we thought we could just have a nice little uh, chat about uh, about your career. You've done some um, pretty incredible things, haven't you? Well, I don't know about incredible things. I'll, I'll tell you later on about a couple of people I know who've done rather more incredible things. But I think if you were to describe a career like mine, it's a bit of ups and a bit of downs. So uh, yeah, I mean, like most people, I I took an interest in flying when I was really quite young. Uh, I went to university with the sole objective of becoming a history teacher um, because it was one of the few things I was really good at. Uh, but while I was there, I managed to inveigle my way into the University Air Squadron, learned to fly on the University Air Squadron, and that was that. And uh, after a couple of years, I thought, well, this probably beats teaching history. So, uh, so I joined the Royal Air Force, <laughs> and the rest is to say, is history. <laughs> and, and so uh, you joined the RAF, what, late 60s, was it? Late 60s, yeah. I, I started flying on the Air Squadron in 1965. Uh, I joined the Air Force proper in 1969, which, of course, was something of a shock from the rather relaxed style of the University Air Squadron to the rather more strict style of learning to be an officer at Hendel and then learning to fly at, at RAF College Cromwell, where uh, life was just a little bit more strict, and uh, we had to do exactly what we were told some of the time. Can you can you, can you give a can you give a little bit of a window into the um into into the shock that you were confronted with in terms of the uh, you know the discipline I suppose? Uh, well, yes, I, we'd been at um we'd been at Cranwell for about three weeks. Our course should have taken place at Linton on Ouse, but we were sent. There were only eight of us. We were sent to Cranwell as a trial for what was to become the graduate entry. And because we were all ex-university, uh, our average age was probably about 22, 23. So we weren't, we weren't young, we weren't children. And we were sitting in the crew room, the eight of us, and this rather small chap, which is a bit rich coming from me, but this rather small chap walked, walked in and looked at us and then roared at the top of his voice, don't you normally stand up when the deputy flight commander walks in? To which we said no, <laughs> which resulted which resulted in us all being banned from flying for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, when were you? You know, what did you start out flying? Well, well going through training, jet provost Mark Four and Mark Three. Uh, I went from there. I, I didn't manage to get to Valley to fly fast jets. So I went to uh, Oakington in Cambridgeshire to fly the Varsity, affectionately known as the Pig to some of your listeners. The Varsity was a, a design that followed on uh, from the wartime Wellington bomber. <laughs> it didn't fly any faster. Uh, it, it was a cumbersome old brute. I, and it was okay to fly 
normally, but like most twin-engine big aeroplanes, it was a bit of a handful in one engine. But but, but, but I muddled through that. Uh, most of the people in the course tended to end up uh, on transport types. I heard the new Hercules, as it was then, um, and some went to the then retiring Hastings. But um, it, it, a couple of us on the course, much to our great surprise, were told we were going to Vulcans. And I thought, oh, that's a bit, not what I expected. But, but I have to say, <laughs> as soon as I got to Scampton and the conversion unit, I thought, well, I think I'm the lucky one here. Yes, of course, it meant a couple of years as a co-pilot. But I don't know if you've ever been in side of Vulcan hands, but um, I have. We'll yeah. come on to that. I'm, I've got some things uh, to ask yeah. you about that. But <laughs> you know, if you ask any pilot of whatever age, if you put a blindfold on him and took him into any aeroplane that he's ever flown, he'll tell you what exactly what it was by the smell. And the Vulcan has got an absolutely distinctive smell, don't we? I don't quite know where it comes from. It's probably a mix of leather and oil and grease. Um, another example is if, you know, the little chipmunk has got an absolutely distinctive smell, which is mainly uh, the smell of the starter cartridge with the finishing notes of dried vomit from all the cadets that have been sick of it over the years. <laughs> But, but, but the Vulcan has got an absolutely special smell. And, and as soon as I climbed up into it for the first time, which, of course, was quite a long after, time after I started the OCU, something like about eight weeks, because we have to do four weeks, five weeks ground school, and two to three weeks simulator. So finally, after a couple of months, you get into the real thing and climb up this double ladder into the cockpit and sit down, and you think, holy moly. First of all, as you know from having looked sat in one, you can't see very much. <laughs> but honestly, once you've sat in it for a couple of hours, that disappears and you don't even notice. So I was thrilled to be flying the Vulcan. I was even more thrilled when I landed a captain whose tour was to be in Cyprus. So uh, after completing the OCU, uh, I set off as a young bachelor to sunny Cyprus for the best part of three years. Very nice, very nice. And did you, um, you, you, you met Leonard Cheshire over there, didn't you? Uh, I did. Um, I mean, obviously, most of the flying in Cyprus was around the Mediterranean, going to places like Malta. We had a, a, a low-level route around Cyprus. We used to also go to a place called Mazira, which is in Oman, mainly to fly higher quality, low level routes. Um, Oman was interesting because we used to fly low levels then into what is now Iran. And um, the, the terrain in southern Iran can be quite jaggy, but it also has long, flat areas of, of almost desert. And I remember thundering across this desert with my captain, Bill Downs, who sadly died last year. And uh, rules were a wee bit different in these days. And Bill was interested to see how, how low we could fly. I won't tell you what the answer is. But as we were scudding along, there were some people ahead. And, and, and Bill looked at me. He was a bit older than me. And he said, hey, Monty, he said, these people are all running away. 
And I said, well, yes, Bill, because the last time they saw a big aeroplane, it was probably about to drop bombs on them. So, so, so that, but, but yes, I, I did meet Cheshire. First of all, I had met him when I completed my officer training at Henlow. And um, he was probably not that old then. Um, that was 1969. So he, he was probably only about in his mid to late 40s. Uh, and I remember him asking me how many flying hours I had, and I rather embarrassingly told him. And he said, oh, well, you know, I, I, during the war, I only got a 1,000 flying hours. Well, of course, he didn't bother remarking that was a 1,000 flying hours, every one of which was spent with somebody trying to kill him. But, but when we were in Cyprus, um, you may have heard of the Cheshire homes, which look after people who are in desperate straits. And Leonard Cheshire and his wife, Sue Ryder, were opening a new home in Asmara, um, which was then part of Ethiopia. So we, my crew and I, took the bomber down to Asmara, which is unusual because it's one of the highest airfields in the world. It's about um, 7,000 feet, so it's a tricky place to land. And we, we actually had... Um, the best part of 10 days with Leonard Cheshire and his wife. And if any of your listeners have met him, he is the most remarkable man in the world. He looks right into the back of your head and asks, and if he said to you, I don't know what you're doing, but stop it and come and work for me, believe me, you do it. Uh, and the surreal experience was compounded in that a number of years later, when I was flying in North Yorkshire, my wife got a job running one of his wife's Sue Ryder's charity shops. So as you said earlier, it is quite a small world. <laughs> but that, that was a, certainly a, a great experience. And indeed, while we were in Ethiopia, we flew quite a few low-level sorties there. And um, just remarkable territory to fly over, you know. Something really special. Well, to talk to me a bit more about the, uh, the you know, flying um, you know, around that region and, and the landing that you alluded to as well. Yeah, well, I mean, by the time I was in the Vulcan, almost all uh, the operational aspects of a flying were at low level. And um, when you join a crew, you start off having to fly, you know, ridiculously high, about 500 feet above the ground. But, but once you get to a decent level of experience, you can walk down to below to, to 300 feet. And slightly below. Um, we also flew low level at night um, using a thing called terrain following radar. We didn't do that in Ethiopia, but we did a lot of mountainous low flying. And um, <clears throat> although the Vulcan is quite a fast airplane, to conserve fatigue, we tended to fly really quite slowly, around about 300 knots. And flying at that kind of speed in, in very tall mountains. You've got to be very careful of energy conservation or you can run out of ideas kind of quickly. But the main aspect for me was just how completely empty the, the, the country seemed. We'd spot the odd village with you know, huts and a couple of buildings. But, but it didn't look as if there were very many people there. That was totally transformed when you took off in the dark. Uh, and, and suddenly the whole place that had seemed empty was covered in, in lights. And these were just all tiny villages dotted all, all over the place. So, yeah, good. 
As to the landing, um, somebody will tell me exactly what the height of Asmara Airport is, which is now, of course, in Eritrea. Um, I think it's getting up to seven or 8,000 feet. The airfield was interesting in that littered around the edge of it were quite a lot of ruined MiG-17s and MiG-21s. Um, it, it was to put, to use the technical expression, the airfield was a bit of a dump. Um, <clears throat> um, but landing was really tricky for a big big airplane at the Vulcan. Um, later on, I used to fly a Learjet in and out of Colorado Springs, and that's quite high. It's about 8,000 feet, but much less challenging in the layer than in the Vulcan. The other thing that was interesting about Asmara is the city of Asmara, well, more a big town, is entirely Italian because in, in the 1930s, the Italians invaded what was then Ethiopia and Eritrea was the northern capital. We weren't allowed to leave the town of Asmara because there was a lot of terrorist activity going on in the area which was a great shame because I'd love to have gone down to the Red Sea coast. But there you go. It was, um, it was a great trip. Great trip. I've got a, I have, if you just hang on a second, I'll get, I'll show you a photograph. Paint pictures with words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, obviously that's a, a Vulcan. And um, in the picture in the middle is Leonard Cheshire and his wife, Sue Ryder, who, as I mentioned, my wife, Ingrid, worked for later. The, the captain, Bill Downs, is... As you're looking at it, or as I'm looking at it, anyway, to the left of Cheshire, mm -hmm. um, and a very smart and slightly overweight me is the second from the left. <laughs> and you can see we're wearing a number number six tropical dress uniforms. I think it's one of the only three or four times in my life I wore the formal tropical dress. Usually we wore a bush jacket. Uh, the other people in the picture next to Bill's a navigator, John Turnbull. John's a very hale and hearty 92 and still alive. Uh, sadly, uh, the other three members of the crew have all died. Uh, on the extreme right is the crew chief, and on the extreme left is the chap who was a station photographer who we took down to take pictures of the visit. And uh, I have to say, as well as meeting Cheshire, the most wonderful part of the visit was going to the Cheshire home and meeting these young children. And I should have brought it out, but I do have a wonderful picture of a, a four-year-old Ethiopian girl uh, with um, um, uh, her nose running violently, but sitting with my hat on the top of her head. And she looks just Wonderful. It's amazing, uh, you know, amazing possessions uh, that, you, that you have and very treasured, I'm sure. Um, you also, uh, there was the Turkish invasion, wasn't you? You ended up having to take the Vulcan to Malta. Yeah, when, we, uh, when the Turks invaded Cyprus, I was actually stuck up. Uh, three of us bachelors owned a, a little village near the tourist resort of Kyrenia in a village called Aisurios. Uh, to a really expensive house. It cost us 18 pounds for three a month between three of us. <laughs> but it was a beautiful spot. And I was trapped there during the invasion. In fact, it's the first time MD ever shot at me when a Turkish phantom came down the beach spraying his cannon fire. So I thought that wasn't very friendly. So after a week stuck in eyes, Yorius, I managed to get back to Akutiri and it was decided that we'd take the bombers and our and our weapons and we hot-footed it to, to Malta for, for a, a few weeks. 
Um, Malta, like Cyprus, is a beautiful island. So we were stuck there. Um, eventually, we did some maritime sorties to see what the Turks were up to, but nothing of any importance whatsoever. Let's go back to, the, you know, when you found out you were going to be flying the, uh, the Vulcan, what was your first impression when you, um, when you first saw it? Because it's, it's a massive, imposing aircraft, isn't it? Well, it is from the outside, but as you know, it's tiny on the inside. You, you can always tell a Vulcan captain from a co-pilot because a co-pilot spends his life walking about like that. The captain spends his life walking about like that. <laughs> um, but, but, of course, for such a big aeroplane, it's unusual in that it's not um, it, it, it's not got a wheel. It's got a it's got a, a stick. It, it's a single stick in a Vulcan, so yeah. it, it, it flies like a not like a big heavy aircraft. In fact, it's very light on the controls. And for most newcomers to the aircraft, the first thing is to settle down um, because there's a tendency to over control. It's called flying control twitch, and the aircraft constantly. Rules. All you've got to do is, first of all, of course, let go of it, um, and you soon get used to flying with flying controls. Uh, but it's a very. I mean, all the aircraft's grossly overpowered. Um, Eighty-eight thousand pounds of thrust out the back, um, and when it's light on fuel, you can out climb and out turn anything. Do, do, do you remember the first time you you flew a Vulcan? Yes, I do, and um, like probably every other BB co-pilot taking off. I mean. Something of a fool of myself. I got a thing off the ground easily enough, managed to get the wheels up, and I spent the next five minutes with the aircraft constantly rolling left to right until the instructor said, well, Why don't you just let go for those a bit? And of course, the aircraft <laughs> just settled down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the, the cockpit, uh, you know, let, let's talk about that because what. I suppose it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. I mean, it's quite a climb up, isn't it, to um, you know, to, to to get to it. And you know, as you mentioned, it is tiny, and the visibility is you know, you know, almost almost non-existent in a way. That way, for a reason, of course. But you know, for something so huge, I suppose you just you naturally would expect to be able to see a bit more, wouldn't you? Well, you know, you can look out the side and see where you've been, which isn't much help to anyone. <laughs> But looking at the front, you, you know, you, once you're down at 300 feet, you know, you, you can see a couple of miles ahead. That's all you need. You can see a target area. And you can certainly see more than enough to land the aeroplane. So yeah, it's only restrictive well, for the first couple of trips when you're, you're surprised by it. But like anything else, you get used to it quickly. When did you... Um... When did you first find out that you'd be going to the Falklands? Well, in 1982, um, I was a flight commander in 44 Squadron, and um, four crews, four V-Force crews were selected to go to something called Red Flag, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Yeah. I mean, Red Flag was set up so that um, the, the Americans discovered in Vietnam that, that if crews survived their first five missions, that their long-term survival rate uh, went up exponentially. So they, they created in the Nevada desert uh, a, a range that, that put you as close to war without being in war. The phrase they used to say was, you know, in, in peacetime you fly in the green, in wartime you fly in the red, here in red flag you're in the amber. And so it was. And the, the four crews flew 
for we flew for a month in the Nevada ranges at night at low level with um, uh, Russian radars opposing us, American airplane aircraft um, copying Russian aircraft. So the experience that we all gained on Red Flag um, probably had upped our game a lot. Um, and when the Argentine forces invaded the Falklands, the UK government's initial response was to plan for a task force. Of course, the Royal Air Force didn't want to be entirely left out, so their airships wondered exactly what the RAF could do. And one option that was considered was to find the only aircraft that could operate offensively at long range, and that was the Vulcan. So three crews were selected initially, and two of us had just returned from Red Flag, Martin Withers' crew and my crew. Um, so that was at Easter 1982. Uh, and we then spent, although we didn't know how long it would be, um, just under two weeks, 13 days on a workup program. First thing we had to do was to not just learn how to refuel, because none of us had ever refueled in the air in our lives before, but we had to solve the engineering problems on the aircraft of making it fit to refuel. And these were quite extensive, and I can discuss them later if you want. Also, the electrical systems of the aircraft weapon system had to be modified from carrying a nuclear weapon, which unsurprisingly we weren't going to be using, to, to conventional weaponry. Uh, and also, <clears throat> we had to both find a, a way of navigating the aircraft at very long range over water, because we usually flew over land, and we used the aircraft's radar to assist with pinpointing its position. So we needed a long-range navigation system. We also needed to do some retuning of the H2S radar to significantly improve its accuracy. Um, if any of your listeners have got a, a technical on this, this means allowing it to look not just directly at a target area, but to look at what are called offsets, i.e. significant um, geographical spots that are easy to see on radar, but then the radar can pretend electronically that is the target. So we had to sharpen up the radar because to bomb a runway, you've got to be really quite accurate. To drop a nuclear weapon, you don't have to be quite so accurate. You can miss by a little bit, um, not with thousand pound bombs. So the, the first couple of days were spent refueling. We, we borrowed some air-to-air -air refueling instructors from the Victor Force, Marum, and um, off we went. Uh, needless to say, we we missed quite a bit to start with, but by the time you got to our second and third sorties, like anything else, you know, you get hang of it. And um, I think I described it on another program once as like shoving wet spaghetti up a cat's bottom. But uh, <laughs> once again, you learn to settle down 
it's not, I mean, we were told previous to this, only fighter pilots and the odd victor captain could refuel in midair. Well, we found out with a bit of practice you could do it. When the weather is good, refueling in midair isn't terribly difficult. When the weather is bad and it's turbulent, it's a different kettle of fish. We also had to learn to do it at night. Although unsurprisingly, I think, the three of us found it slightly easier at night because there was less distraction, uh, less to worry about. All you could see was the shape of the tanker ahead of you because one doesn't look at the basket, one looks at the tanker and at reference points. So there was less to take your eyes away and you could prod more easily. We also started dropping 1,000-pound bombs, and we scared quite a few sheep on Garvey Island off the north of Scotland by dropping 1,000-pounders there by day and night. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Garvey Island, but it's a very small island, about four, 600 metres off 1,000-foot-high cliffs. And I have to tell you, some of the most turbulent flying I've ever done <clears throat> didn't bother the sheep, though. And we also did quite a lot of night low-level flying. Now, the, the three crews that were involved at this stage were the three crews who had most night low-level experience by far in the V-Force, mainly because of red flag. So we, we flew low-level sorties down the west coast of Scotland at, and to over the eventually we reached Aleman and dropped some practice bombs there and then did more refueling. So all that took place in about 13 days. And then out of the blue, we were told, right, this is it. At this stage, we hadn't really expected that we would really go and do this. And suddenly out of the blue, we were told, you are going. Um, as I said, there were three crews. The, the, the air officer commanding decided that, and I can't possibly imagine why he thought this, because I was a relatively stroppy chap, I would best to go first to set up the detachment and um, make arrangements for the arrival of the two bombers. Martin Withers and John Reeve then flew down the next day uh, with 21,000 bombs in each aircraft and refueled a couple of times en route to Ascension Island, which is where we were going to be based. It is worth mentioning that before the transit to Ascension, none of us had ever been in a formation at night of more than one Victor and one Vulcan. But when I arrived at Ascension Island, it quickly transpired that we were going to need an awful lot of Victor tankers to get one Vulcan down to the Falkland Islands. So uh, the first thing to do was to sit down with the Victor planners and the one group planners to devise a fuel plan. Um, because the intent was that at any stage in the long transit south, that both the Vulcan, Vulcans, and the Victors, until the last possible moment, could at least have a reasonable shot at getting all the way back to Ascension Island. And of course, as you might imagine, we thought this was quite a good idea. So the fuel planning was a crucial part of what was to follow. 
Sorry, I've talked for quite a long time. No, no, that's the idea of a podcast. Um, (laughs) That's not a problem. What we're going to do is we're going to pick this up um, in in a second part, uh, Fly Past Podcast Extra. Um, But for now, thank you very much, uh, Monty, for uh, chatting to us. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, See you again um, next week. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.